Do most nations of the world love the Jewish people? No, they hate them. Why are they fleeing Western Europe and they keep moving into Israel? Because they're so hated by the Germans, by the French, by the English. There's an anti-Semitic spirit that just keeps growing and growing and growing. This is Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the prophetic section of the Revelation, looking at a series of judgments that will take place on earth in a time known as the Tribulation. We've seen the catching up of God's people in what is commonly referred to as the Rapture. And then a scroll is revealed with seven seals that yield increasing punishment on the world. This is then followed by another series of judgments known as the Trumpet Judgments. Today, we move into chapter 11 in a message entitled, Two Witnesses from Another Place. What we're going to study today about these two witnesses and a temple and all this stuff, for it ever to happen, the Jewish people would need to be in the land of Israel where they would even want to rebuild a temple. Now, centuries ago, Hundreds of years before Jesus came to this world, there was a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Ezekiel. And he looked down the corridors of time through the future to the future, and he said this concerning the Jewish people, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And Ezekiel the prophet, as we'll see again, signals this time is happening at the end of time before Messiah rules on the earth. And what the amazing thing is, is that we are seeing this prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. Amillennialists and people who think there's no future for Israel, they, they just said, oh, these promises were conditional. God's done with the Jews. And that was easy to say in the 1800s. In 1895, there was 25,000 Jewish people scattered across the land of Israel, max. Now there is nearly 7 million of the 12 and a half million Jews upon the planet. God has brought and is bringing year after year more and more Jewish people. The anti-Semitic spirit grows, it spreads, and they keep coming to Israel. And I meet Jewish people when I go to Israel. Why do you come? I have no explanation except to say, just was in my heart to come here. Who do you suppose put that in their heart? I'll tell you, a sovereign God in heaven. And he is fulfilling this prophecy in our day, in our lifetime, which is a reminder to us that God has not abandoned Israel. The covenant he made with Abraham, he will keep, and that we are that much closer. There's never been any prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church. Whereas the second coming is a predicted program. There's a lot of things that have to happen, like an antichrist, like a one world government, like a temple that is rebuilt, like a temple that is defiled before the second coming can happen. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, prophecy that God says will happen at the very end of time, then you know that you are living in those days where the rapture of the church is close. Verse 1, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Listen, chapter 11 can only take place if there are Jewish people back in the land who want to rebuild a temple, a temple that is going to be standing in this seven-year period where it can be measured. 
Now, if you go to the place where the temple once stood, you'll see this today. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It was built between 685 and 691 A.D. And supposedly to commemorate the place in which Muhammad got on his winged horse and flew into heaven. Uh, it's not a mosque. There's a mosque next to it. It's a monument. It's a monument honoring Muhammad. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Revelation, it was on top of these 37 acres, the most contested piece of real estate in the world today, that God's temple once stood. In Titus, in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, literally came in and he destroyed the temple. Jesus said twice over it would happen. First on Palm Sunday when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey and he wept over the city and he said, why? And among those why answers is the fact that God's temple is going to be destroyed because of the unbelief of Israel. And then a few days later, when the disciples ask him about it again there on the Mount of Olives, he repeats it. Let me give you the repeat in Matthew 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple, not building, but buildings, underscore that in your mind, the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not one stone. Now, I suppose the question was precipitated by what he said on Palm Sunday. And they're curious on Palm Sunday. He said, it's all going to be destroyed, not one stone upon another. They said, Lord, look at these buildings. And he repeats himself, not one stone upon another. Now, again, this is important. We have been living in the last days, according to Acts chapter 2, since the day of Pentecost. The last days began when God sent the Spirit. Peter said, what you're seeing in this day, the day of Pentecost, is what God said would happen in the last days. And that's important because in one sense, the church has always lived with the expectation that Jesus could come at any moment. That's one term. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. But the latter day is a term that we studied in Daniel that we see in other prophets refers not just to the last days that started at Pentecost, but to the very end of time before the second coming when Messiah will come and rule and reign upon the earth. So keep that in mind because God is describing what he is going to do in the latter days when he brings the Jewish people back into the land. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Now, again, this is a very specific command in verse 1. Then someone, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God. That's an impossible task. You cannot possibly measure a temple today on top of the temple mount because there's no temple of God to measure. Now, if you go to Israel, you will see this picture that we often see. It's called the Western Wall. And on the left side, you will have men as they face the wall who will be praying. And on the right side, you will have women. And if you walk up to any Orthodox Jew, if they are kind enough to answer you, and if you look a little Jewish, they might answer you. If you don't, they'll probably just walk away. But if you ask any Orthodox Jew, what are you praying for every day? Why are there people here 24-7 praying at this wall? They'll all give you the same answer. We are praying for the temple on top of this platform to be rebuilt. 
That wall you see is not the temple wall. That was the retaining wall that Herod built. He built this retaining wall, and he put all these arches in the dirt and filled it up with dirt and made a flat platform on the top that today, of course, is all concrete. But the retaining wall, they're praying at the retaining wall and that section of the wall that was closest to where the temple stood. And of course, um, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, we studied that in Daniel 9, and it might be helpful if you're new to the Bible of this church to go back and listen to the messages on Daniel 9. But right in the middle of this seven-year period, the Apostle Paul said it, the Apostle John will illustrate it for us, Jesus taught it, Daniel prophesied it. Right in the middle of this seven years, this one world leader is going to go into the temple of God, and he's going to defile it. And he's going to do something else with that. He's not only going to claim to be God. Paul says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. But he's also going to do a second thing, which we'll study later on, that will be foolproof positive that this man is a fraud, that he cannot possibly be Israel's Messiah. And then they're going to turn against him, and he's going to turn against them. And not just him, he's going to get the nations of the world to turn against them. Now, the temple needs to be rebuilt for this particular act to happen. If you try to rebuild the temple today, there would be a massive war, I tell you, in the Middle East. 100 million Arabs surround this little piece of land the size of Delaware. There would be a massive war. Yet God says it's going to be rebuilt. Now, it may not start until after the church is raptured, and this man of peace comes with all kinds of miracles. He's going to delude the peoples of the world, and he may convince or demand the nations of the world to let the Jews rebuild it. I don't know. But there are a couple of different theories, and let me just explain to you in terms of the actual location of the temple. And let me just say, if you go to Israel next month, God willing, we're going to a place called the Temple Institute. It's right there in the city of Jerusalem. It's run by all these Orthodox Jews. What have they done? They've reproduced all of the temple furniture. They've re reproduced all of the temple garments. And if you're watching Fox News last month, most Jews can't identify what tribes they are from. But in the providence and the sovereignty of God, the Levites can. And so all these young Levitical priests, as they showed on Fox News, are out in the fields and they are practicing the sacrificial system. Now, it made some people upset that they were killing animals and stuff, but they are preparing and being trained for a temple that is going to be rebuilt. Now, if you looked at the temple in Christ's day, this is what it would look like. On one end, you have what's called the Solomon's portico, and you read about that in Acts where, you know, a guy said, you know, he's a beggar, and Peter says at this place, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have, get up in the name of Jesus, walk. A lot of stuff happens there. Uh, in the middle is the temple itself. Remember, the first temple was built by Solomon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar tore it down. It began a time known as the time of the Gentiles. After 70 years, they come back. And God, ever before it happened, 150 years before it happened, he predicted that there would be a king who wasn't even born yet. His name would be Cyrus. And he would let the Jewish people go back and rebuild the temple. And so the second temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And then it had a facelift by a guy named Herod. There's seven Herods in the Bible. Herod the Great. 
and he built a magnificent temple. It was breathtaking. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the early first century. Now, there's different lists of the seven wonders of the world, but this was considered on most lists to be one of the greatest, most magnificent buildings anywhere on the planet. It sat in the middle, and then on the far end, you had the fortress of Antonio, the Fortress Antonia. It was the place where the Roman officers were headquartered. And when there were big events in order to keep peace, they brought all these soldiers into the land because there would be an influx of some million Jews onto the property. Now, that's what it looked like in Jesus's day. Again, this was 37 acres of land. It's a big piece of property. Now, where is the temple going to be built? Well, there's two credible theories. One I will mention to you first that has absolutely no scholarship and can't possibly be right. And it, as you bring up the next picture, um, one theory says here's the Temple Mount as you'd see it today. And here on the south side of the Temple Mount, there's a place called the City of David. When David came in, uh, he conquered a certain Canaanite people known as the Jebusites. And he did it through a plan God gave him. To function as a city, you have to have a water supply, especially in the Middle East. No water, no, no life, no, no city. And so he brought his men through a tunnel, and you can go through that tunnel today. It's called Warren Shaft. And they came up into the city, and they overthrew the Jebusites. And this became the city of David. At one point, David in his pride counted the army. God said, you shouldn't have done that. He was putting his confidence in the flesh rather than in the living God, so he counted the soldiers. And so God, if you remember, sent a plague, gave him one of three choices, sent a plague. And um, so David needed a place to sacrifice. And so there was a guy named Aruna, and he bought the piece of land above the city of David, which is what we call the Temple Mount. And up there on the Temple Mount, David sacrifices, and the plague stops. Later on, his son Solomon, in the same place, will build the temple. And it's up here on the top of Mount Moriah, by the way, that Abraham offers Isaac as a type of Christ. I think further down, but nonetheless. So this, this is a really important place in biblical history. So some Christians... Uh, well, really, the theory came in the 1980s by a guy who was not a Christian. His name is Ernest Martin. He was with a group called the Worldwide Church of God. And used to be 20 years ago, you go into airports, convenience stores. They had these magazines everywhere called The Plain Truth. It was written by a cult called the Worldwide Church of God. They denied the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of the Trinity. They were just heretics. But people bought their magazines, didn't buy them, they were free. And they, you'd find them everywhere. And they had fascinating little articles. The problem was they were filled with error. And so this guy, Ernest Martin, came up with the idea that, oh, the temple is going to be outside the current Temple Mount. Therefore, we could build it now. Nothing stopping us. There wouldn't be World War III. And then in more recent years, an evangelical guy by the name of Bob Kanuke, is how most people pronounce it, not Bob Cook, Bob Kanuke. And uh, nonetheless, he sells sensation. You know, he, he found, he says, the, the anchor of the Apostle Paul when he wrecked there in the island of Malta. I mean, he sold all kinds of books on sensationalism. And he has sold this theory to a lot of evangelicals. And the reason I'm even wasting my time on it today is because so many of you have asked me about it. It has no credibility whatsoever, and I could spend an hour on it giving you 10 reasons why it is impossible for the temple to be built there. 
There's a second theory, as the next picture brings up, and that is the theory that the temple will be built right here on the Dome of the Rock. There are traditional Jews who say the temple sat literally, physically, actually where the Dome of the Rock is. And so wanting to build their temple in the same spot, they say that somehow has to come down. Look, if they laid a finger on that piece of property, again, there'd be World War III in the Middle East. Um, a third view, and many biblical scholars, Jewish and Christian alike, uh, as you can see on this next one, say it's actually to the right in between the Fortress Antonia and the Dome of the Rock. There's a little cupola of sorts called uh, the Dome of the Spirits, and they say it should sit there, and there'd be about 150 feet between the Dome of the Rock in this third temple that is going to be constructed. Hey, look, even the northern view that I think has great credibility, Dr. Kaufman, a Jewish archaeologist and biblicist at Hebrew University, posited the, the, the theory has great credibility for two reasons. Number one, this would line up the future temple with the eastern gate, and we'll look at that in a moment. And it would allow the Messiah to come right to the eastern gate without going left or right. And number two, the water source comes to this part of the temple. And so there's an aqueduct that flows all the way from Bethlehem to this northern section of the Temple Mount. And that's where the water was used in the first century for the whole sacrificial system. You say, well, why is the eastern gate lining up with the temple important? Well, here's a picture of the eastern gate. And again, if you were standing today on the Mount of Olives, you'd be looking across a valley called the Kidron Valley, also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. And there's this eastern wall of the Temple Mount. And on one section of the eastern wall, there's something called the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. Um, now, understand, Jerusalem has been conquered where the walls have been destroyed and rebuilt about 18 times. 18 times, that's a lot. In fact, when they uh, rebuild the wall, they don't have to go look for rock. It's just all over the ground. They just start all over again. So you go to this ancient wall, and you'll see rocks that have Herod's signature on it. The guy had an ego problem. He wanted his signature on literally every brick, as we might say. And you see the Herodian rocks built into this wall. Now, the Bible prophesies that Messiah would come through this gate, then the gate would be shut, and then the Bible also prophesies that when Messiah comes a second time, he is going to come through this gate. Let me give you the prophecy where it speaks of the gate being shut. It says, then he brought me back. This is Ezekiel, the 44th chapter. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east. That's the one we're talking about, the picture we just looked at. And it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Jesus came down the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, and he went right through this gate. This is the gate that he went through. The Lord will go through it, and then it will be shut. Now, this current shutting that you have, it's been shut a number of times because the walls have fallen down, happened by a guy named Suleiman I. They called him Suleiman the Magnificent. You know, suppose he had an ego problem. You know, Carl the Magnificent, Solomon the Magnificent. Well, so he had the wall sealed up. Why did he have it sealed up? Because the Muslims in his day said, the Jewish people say, Messiah is going to come through that gate. Seal it up. You go to Israel today, you come to this old city, 
There's eight gates. Seven are functioning. One is sealed. You say, that's coincidental. I don't think so. I think it's God. It's a God incident. God allowed that. It's shot. But it's been opened and shut a number of times. It's been closed since Suleiman in the 1500s. But actually, an American archaeologist who was studying at Hebrew University in 1969 was right outside that wall taking pictures of that eastern gate. It had rained for several weeks. The ground was real weak. And all of a sudden, the ground below him collapsed, and he fell into a grave. And he said, I almost jumped out of the grave. You know, it was kind of spooky for him. But he had his camera, and he took pictures. And what did he see? You can see the pictures. He saw the top of the eastern gate. So you see, the wall that you see, the whole demographics of the old city has changed. You Sometimes when you go to Jerusalem, you walk down 15 feet to get to the stones that Jesus walked on. Why is that? Because the thing has been overthrown and fought. They've gone through 40-some battles so many times, and it's like any other city gets kind of raises up after a while. In 70 AD, when Titus came in, the Roman general, God said that the temple would be torn apart. Now, he said that they were not to set fire to the temple. Don't touch the temple. It was just a Roman custom never to hurt a temple. Why? Because you'd enrage and inflame the people. Don't touch the temple. Somehow it caught on fire. And if you've read about the temple, it's covered in gold just everywhere. And the gold melted and went down into the rocks. And the Roman soldiers wanting the spoil of war literally pried apart every rock, just as Jesus said, such that one stone would not stand upon another. It's just as the Lord said. And so that whole Temple Mount, you can go there and you'll see big piles of the original stones from the temple that Solomon, Zerubbabel, and Herod built around the outside. And that whole gate is actually underneath this wall and it's been shut since 70 AD. But God prophesies it's going to be open again. When? When Jesus comes back, his feet are going to step on the Mount of Olives, literally, All prophecy concerning his first coming was literally fulfilled. It's going to be literally fulfilled. He's going to step on the Mount of Olives. And this valley that goes north to south, it's going to open up north uh, north to south. It's going to open up east and west. And God is going to blow a hole, and those gates are going to open up. Psalm 24. The king is going to walk through those gates. Now, literally, it's going to happen. But it can't happen until something else happens. This is what Jesus said on Palm Sunday. This group of people who said, hail him, hail him, hail him, waving their palm branches, hail him, hail him. A few days later, they would say, nail him, nail him. And so Jesus said on that day, for I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, you are not going to see me again, you Jewish people. Until you say, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, he didn't recognize their appellation that day of praise because he knew how empty it was and how fickle it was. And all they wanted was a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, not someone who would be crucified. But a day is coming. I cannot come again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic passage from the Old Testament. 
When is that going to happen? When are the Jews going to say that? When in the time of the great tribulation, they're going to recognize that the one they crucified, they'll look on him whom they have pierced, was indeed the Savior of the world. So God has them measure it. Look at it again. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, there's a number of passages you could look at in Ezekiel and Zechariah, but very often when God measures something in the Bible, it's to show that he owns it. He owns it. We do the same thing today. Your neighbor says, that's my land. No, I don't think so. I think your fence is on my property. No, that's my land. So you call out a surveyor and he measures the property and you find out exactly who owns it. Jesus said, I want you to measure the temple. Uh, I want you two guys to measure the temple because God owns it. And I don't want you just to measure the temple. I also want you to measure the people worshiping in the temple. Why? Because he owns them. And he's not forsaken Israel. And it's during this time that they are going to say Jesus is Lord. And it's going to bring out the second coming. Yet we read in verse 2, notice, leave out the court, which is outside the temple. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, if Dr. Asher Kaufman is correct, and the third temple is north of the Dome of the Rock with 150 feet between it, it would make total sense to me why God would not want this temple measured, this, this section of the temple grounds measured. Why? Because the Dome of the Rock sits on it. And it's like God saying, I don't own that. I reject Islam. In either case, there's a time coming in history where Gentile oppression on the Jews is going to increase like never before. There are two important terms. We study them in Daniel 9. We study them in Romans 11. One is called the times of the Gentiles. The other is called the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began, according to the Bible, about 600 years before Christ, when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came and carried the the Jews away into exile. And ever since 600 years before Christ, the Jewish people have been oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world. Even today, yes, they're in their own land, but do the nations around them and do most nations of the world love the Jewish people? No, they hate them. Why are they fleeing Western Europe and they keep moving into Israel? Because they're so hated by the Germans, by the French, by the English. There's an anti-Semitic spirit that just keeps growing and growing and growing. But the fullest expression of Gentile opposition will be in this final 42 months. Here's a chart that might help us to visualize a little bit. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles, and it began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will go all the way until the second coming of Christ. The other term I mentioned is the fullness of the Gentiles. We often call it the church age, where God is calling out a bride to be his own. And... Um, There's coming a time when that will be full. Right now, God is not using the Jewish people to evangelize the world because for the most part, they are in unbelief with a rare exception. Doesn't mean a Jewish person can't come to Christ. A Jewish man was instrumental in leading me into the kingdom. There's a partial hardening, not a total hardening. But there's going to come a time when all Israel will believe and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. To listen again to today's study entitled, Two Witnesses from Another Place, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV26. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing Christ to those who don't know Him and growing believers in their walk with Him. Join us in our mission through a one-time or regular financial gift. Details are online at searchthescriptures.org or through the Search the Scriptures app. Simply click the Give button or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our look at two witnesses from another place. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.